Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Shelton. And today I am so happy to be joined by Adam Lotz. He's the author of Creationism USA, Bridging the Impasse on Teaching Evolution, published in September of 2020 by Oxford University Press. Adam, so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I would love to to get into this book, but first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm professor of history and education at Binghamton University, State University in New York. Um, I did my PhD um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, graduated 2007, so I've been here since then. Um, first part of my career, I was a middle school teacher, a high school teacher, and that's really what sort of drove me into the study of the history of educational culture wars and things like that. That's wonderful. So what's what's the story behind this book, Creationism USA? What, what motivated you to write it? Right. Well, so um, I've been studying, I had been uh, studying um, the history of creationism in American schools um, and in American intellectual and religious life. I had published a couple of books uh, about it and about related topics and um, literally nobody in my family would talk to me about it. I was on a strict <laughs> 25 <laughs> words or less, you know, like, don't get Adam going on creationism. He, he, he won't stop. However, uh, my sister-in-law, one night we were summer vacation and she was, you know, on the porch and she, she, she was like, okay, we got time. So Adam, what's the deal? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> the way she put it was, why do creationists put Jesus on a dinosaur? You know, so the original, my working title for the book for a long time is why is Jesus on a dinosaur? Hmm. Um, so I started the book um, as a, a somewhat more expansive, still history, but a more expansive look at uh, the, the um, many meanings of creationism in American society. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful your, your subtitle is Bridging the Impasse on Teaching Evolution. There, there's this theme in the book that there's these two sides that don't really understand each other very well. So maybe to get us into some of the big ideas in this book, what's one thing that you wish evolutionary theorists would know about creationists and vice versa? Yeah, um, uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a great one. And it's, this is one of the puzzles for me when I got into answering my sister-in-law's question. How has it been, you know, the, the, the fights that are happening about evolution, education and creationism in 2022, um, in some ways they're very different, but in some ways they're, they're strangely durable. You know, why are we, you still hear people say, why are we still fighting about this almost 100 years after the Scopes trial in 1925? Um, so I think the biggest one for me, uh, addressing the... Um, the uh, not creationist side and or maybe the not radical creationist side people who don't know much about the contours of american creationism people like me by the way i grew up secular i'm not uh, religious i'm not uh, from any background like that um the thing that i think is most important to understand is that creationism doesn't happen because people haven't heard about evolution or evolutionary theory Hmm. So back in uh, 2014, for example, Bill Nye, the science guy, he uh, accepted a debate uh, at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. 
um, the home of Answers in Genesis, one of the most prominent young earth creationist organizations uh, in the world right now. Um, and his um, assumption, I think, is fair to say that he could help, Bill Nye could help by sort of spreading the word about evolution education, uh, by letting people know how much evidence there is for you know mainstream evolutionary theory. And I think the background assumption is that a big part of creationism is that sort of people haven't heard about it yet. And I think that's false. I think if we start with that sort of deficit mindset of creationism, you'll always be playing catch up. If that were the case, 2022 would look a lot different. And to be fair, 1927 would look a lot different. If it was a question of spreading the facts about mainstream science, they've been spread. Uh, The facts are out there. uh, Creationism, especially radical creationism that disputes mainstream science, they know a lot uh, about evolutionary science. They just don't like it. So for one side, for the sort of evolution side, evolution education side, I'd say the first thing, creationism isn't from the past. It's not a lack of knowledge. It can be, but that's not the main thing about it. Uh, And for the creationist side, I'd say similarly, evolution is not, uh, sorry, evolutionary theory. It's not a plot. Uh, No (laughs) one is out to get your children. Um, the, the, and it, it sounds like I'm, you know, uh, being flipped, but really the, 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 a lot of anger from, um, the radical creationist side isn't actually about the scientific ideas. It's about the notion. And you see it again in headlines in the U S about critical race theory and banning books. There's a strong, a, to me, surprisingly strong and surprisingly durable tension in American culture for some conservatives that mainstream culture is out to get children. Uh, And you see that for now for a hundred years and more uh, among some radical creationist groups. So the thing I would like to, to, if anything, get across is that, you know, maybe somewhere someone is plotting to use evolution to get, you know, kids out of, to change their religious ideas. Maybe. But that's not what groups like the National Center for Science Education or the National Science Teachers uh, Association or John Scopes or any of these people for 100 years, they, they're they not trying to harm children by teaching them evolution. You've mentioned this name, Scopes, and the Scopes trial a couple of times. Now, as a historian, you've done some really excellent work showing that the, the kind of creationism that gets all the attention and all the, the press today which you call radical creationism, it is really, it's a quite recent phenomenon and not even represented in this, this kind of legendary Scopes trial. So, so how has creationism changed over the last century um, to its present day? And maybe let's start with what the Scopes trial was. Right. So, okay. Yeah, Scopes trial uh, is from this burst of 1920s agitation about what was going on in public schools. Mm. Uh, and in, in the book, Creationism USA, I try to make the case that these fights are not actually about science. They're not actually about theology. You know, They're not disputes about those things. Those things are involved for sure, but they're really about um, what America wants itself to be like and who gets to make those decisions in schools. So in the 1920s, um, again, with the current a burst of school board activism and school laws, 
1920s were very similar, but the, the, the phrase that terrified conservatives in the 1920s wasn't critical race theory. It was the word evolution. Hmm. And so there's this burst of laws, um, you know, 53 bills are considered in uh, 21 states, including the U.S. Congress, to ban evolution from public schools. Uh, five of them passed. One of them is in the state of Tennessee. And that's the state uh, that took it to trial. And the trial became this famous, world famous, symbolic clash between um, different visions of what um, science and religion should do, of what schools should do. Celebrities get involved in the Scopes trial. William Jennings Bryan uh, was a, a presidential candidate. Uh, he was a, a, a syndicated writer. Um, and he, he takes the side that evolution should be banned. And uh, Clarence Darrow is the sort of famous atheist uh, lawyer. He takes a side that it, it should, that the ban is no good. And so it becomes this symbolic fight about what school should do, what school should be teaching. Over time, though, the, uh, the mainstream science becomes more and more uh, advanced and more and more broadly accepted. In the 1920s, it was unclear how natural selection uh, played a driving role in evolution. By the 1950s, it's no longer unclear. So in the 1950s, we have a new generation of what I call radical creationists who dispute uh, an idea that is a scientific idea that is really no longer disputed among scientists, mainstream scientists. And so we have a new generation of creationist activism beginning in the 60s. My term, um, I wrestled long and hard with how to talk about different types of creationism. There's there's endless amount of types. Yeah. um, But the distinction that matters, to my mind, are creationists who dispute the central truths of mainstream science and try to do something about that in public. So those are the ones that I call radical creationists these days. One of the things that you mentioned that even at the time of the Scopes trial, the most anti-evolutionary camp still thought that some of the things that are now common among young earth creationists, they found that to be, um, in some cases, absurd. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, for sure. So then the, the 1920s generation of anti-evolutionists, they didn't call it creationism yet, but but we can, uh, I'm sure that we'll, <laughs> they can forgive us for a little bit of anachronism. Yeah. Um, so in the, the 1920s generation, the, the biggest change was that a lot of those anti-evolutionists, not all of them, but a lot of them thought of themselves, assumed themselves to be the proper arbiters for American culture, especially uh, religious culture. You know, so coming out of sort of America's reform tradition, uh, Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, um, a lot of the leaders of these, the most prominent members, simply assumed that they were America's pastors uh, often. Um, so uh, part of the shock, uh, scientifically, they certainly never, so people like William Jennings Bryan, William Bell Riley in Minneapolis, um, they never accepted this sort of what has become common for radical creationists, which is a sort of outsider minority uh, position. That wasn't the case in the 1920s. It was a clear majoritarian position, uh, assuming that they represented not just America's sort of uh, civic religion and traditional civic religion, but also America's cutting edge science and America's morality. 
So people like William Jennings Bryan at the Scopes trial uh, assumed they were speaking for mainstream science. They refused to believe that mainstream science had um, could really uh, adopt Darwinian, you know, natural selection type evolution. Uh, and that is one of the biggest things that changed over the generations. By the mm. 1960s, there's a there's a, a, a another generational uh, challenge uh, for America's Protestant creationists, um, and we get another split in the 1950s, and that's where we get today's most prominent radical creationists, the Young Earth uh, crowd. So as I was reading the book, there's this theme that that kind of jumped out at me that I'm wondering if we can put some of these puzzle pieces together. So these debates about the beginning of the world seem to often be linked with expectations for the end of the world. So for example, you you in this chapter on Christian higher education especially talk about how there's this great kind of intricacy and sophisticated um, system of end times predictions in, in dispensational theology in particular that is often linked with a lot of the young earth intricate creationist paradigms. But then also many of the, the, the people who are concerned with evolutionary science have their own end times, uh, we could call it the climate apocalypse that they're concerned with. So I'm wondering, do you think this is maybe common ground, another um, bridge uh, to, to bridge this impasse? Or is it just another point of division between these these different sides. Yeah, I think it, it's a great uh, a great point. Um, apocalypse is never far. Uh, you know, the end of the world is never far from the beginning of the world, as, as you put it. Um, I, I I do think that if if um, we want to make sense uh, of creationism, especially in the United States, but around the world as well, um, it's important not to be too uh, not to spend too much time with the the theology. Even when that's one of the most prominent things that radical creationists themselves talk about, hmm. um, but 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 uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter at all. It matters a lot, uh, and I think it's if <laughs> if the Bill Nyes of the world can agree that it's not just theology that inspires creationists, then the next step would be to say, but okay, they also need to understand some theological concerns. That might be foreign to their background, as you mentioned, uh, uh, a Christian apocalyptic tradition, especially among um, what they call dispensational premillennialists. Yeah, it really is central to the institutionalization of radical creationism in the 20th century in the United States. Uh, universities like Bob Jones University are now the more famous Liberty University. Um, they they institutionalize that vision of the end as the central theological uh, uniting factor for a, 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 a ferociously Protestant uh, movement that doesn't have a pope, it doesn't have catechisms to agree on, but it can agree in some ways on these, these you know, religious ideas about the end. Now, is there hope if we all agree that things are going to end terribly? I'm sorry, if we can all agree that things are going to end and it's going to be a mess, it might not be terrible depending on your point of view. But it's going to be a mess, even if you're a Christian uh, uh, apocalypse uh, student. It's going to be a mess. Now, if you're a secular or Christian uh, climate apocalypticist, um, it's terrible. The world's going to end due to climate concerns. If we can all agree that the end is coming and it's going to be messy, does that mean we can find common ground? 
this isn't me saying it, but when you look at what uh, today's American radical creationists say about it, the young earth type, like, for example, Answers in Genesis, we get a resounding no, uh, like a lot of religious ideas, when things seem to be coming from an outside perspective, when things seem to be similar, that's actually when you get the most ferocious fights. So a lot of the um, young earth creationists and, and, and Answers in Genesis is just the biggest one. They are the most vocal um, uh, opponents to secular climate apocalypse uh, because they they have a reason to insist that, that that kind of apocalypse couldn't be true precisely because they have another apocalypse to look for. So um, yes, the world is going to end <laughs> and it's going to end. There's going to be fire. There's It's going to be terrible. It's going to be messy, uh, but it's important for certain um, radical creationists like the Young Earth Group um, that the climate part is an absolute misleading lie. So it, instead of saying, "Hey, we all agree things are apocalyptic," you know, can we can we move on? Can we build on this agreement? I think in this case, no. Uh, the diff because they all agree on the importance of it, it actually drives them apart. This idea that the closer different ideas are exacerbates the 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 ferociousness of the the division is this important point that you make in the book where often it's not that creationists are fighting with evolutionary theorists and vice versa it's that the the the, the fiercest fights are actually the intramural ones the ones that are happening between people on the same side is that right yeah absolutely and 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 if we focus on what's most interesting to most people the sort of current landscape as it was born in the early 1960s, um, the fights between prominent Christian creationists uh, in the U.S. and around the world, but especially, you know, I focused on the ones here in the U.S., uh, they, they reach a level of savagery that you don't see um, when you talk about, uh, you know, secular versus creationists. So, for example, um, you know, the, the, in 1959, Bernard Ram writes this uh, bombshell book, uh, arguing for a type of evangelical Protestant creationism that has no need to dispute mainstream scientific ideas about the age of the earth, about the, 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 the origins of the, of the species. Um, and he, Bernard Ram and everyone who agrees with him, uh, become the targets of a generation long campaign among uh, the young earth group who, because they have so much in common, it becomes a necessary uh, for them necessary. Uh, they need to separate themselves clearly because they are so similar. So, and it happens institutionally as well. You have institutions like Wheaton College in Illinois that tend to teach a, a mainstream science-friendly creationism, and then you have young Earth colleges like Bob Jones in South Carolina that teach a young Earth only. And those two institutions, by the end of the 20th century, like literal in the archives <laughs> at Bob Jones, Bob Jones Jr., it's a family business, wrote on the file, move Wheaton College from F, meaning friendly, to U, meaning unfriendly. Uh, those conflicts are bitter. They're personal. It's, it's like the family fight in which things get real nasty. Towards the end of your book, you you make the claim that there's there's actually more common ground 
between most American creationists and most American um, adherents to evolutionary mainstream science. In fact, you've given two rules that you think it can can help us bridge this impasse. What are those rules, and, and how do you think they can help us? Well, I think it's 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 and uh, with a nod to the fact to my friends who teach middle school science, and they say lots of crazy. You know, <laughs> you haven't had a seventh grader jump up out of his seat, as one of my friends uh, teaching in Kentucky, seventh grader jumping up out of his seat in the twenty first century when I mentioned the word evolution and shouting. You know, I didn't come from a monkey. You know, like okay. I get that realities in the, on the ground are tricky uh, and and hot and heated and angry sometimes. Okay, I get that. But taking the comfortable my university office perspective, uh, we see from poll after poll and and uh, sensitive uh, you know surveying um, uh, of the American populace, most Americans, even ones who by any fair definition are creationists. They want their children to learn evolution, uh, evolutionary theory. Uh, the key word, they want their children to learn about evolutionary theory. Uh, that's something that huge majorities, not everybody, but huge majorities of Americans can agree on. So thing number one, uh, Americans want our children to learn about evolutionary theory. Thing number one. Thing number two uh, on either side, or I guess it's fair to say all sides, nobody wants public schools to be cramming religious ideas down children's throats at all. Um, so if you're a secularist like me, uh, you don't want religion involved in public school decisions for secular reasons. If you're a, a religious person, you don't trust the public school to be telling your kids religious truth. That's that's for family and church. So thing number one, we all want uh, schools to teach kids about evolutionary theory. Thing number two, we none of us want um, schools to be cramming or enforcing any specific religious idea down kids' throats. So given those two truths, we have, unlike the apocalypse part, with those two truths, we have a huge middle ground we can agree on. And if if we could agree to focus on those things, which again, if you teach middle school, you know that this is a little more difficult than it sounds. But if we can agree to focus on those things, we have a huge foundation uh, to move forward, to bridge the impasse about teaching evolution. It's really helpful. As we kind of move towards a close here, I wonder who who would you hope might pick up a copy of Creationism USA? And, and what do you hope will be the impact of this book that you've, you've been working on and is now available to us? Right. Well, I would love um, for... People like my sister-in-law, who who are American, kind of religious, but not really, you know, it's not a main part of their identity as they understand it. And they see creationism as a puzzle. You know, you see every once in a while a journalist will go to a creationist thing and say, hey, these people, they don't make any sense. They do make sense. Uh, it's just a different kind of a, a different way to be American. So I would love for every secular person who's curious about America and American creationism to, to read, to understand uh, the nuances, uh, the real meanings, and the history. Creationists, especially, I think, uh, uh, could pick this up to say uh, there is no reason why we have to feel beleaguered in our country. There's no reason why our faith and our beliefs about the past um, have to mark us off as a, a, a you know a segregated or, or 
you know, put down group, you know, there's no reason for us to, to, um, you know, take any kind of, uh, position where we are, you know, out, uh, emphasizing our own victimhood. There's no need for that. So specifically, uh, I'm very happy to say the National Center for Science Education just uh, gave me a great friend of Darwin award uh, for my work, including this book. Um, and I think specifically uh, people who are interested in science education should read it. Classroom teachers, sure, but they're already the heroes of the book. They already know a lot of this stuff. Um, I think people who are interested in um, what America wants itself to be like, you know, what America wants its kids to know, uh, I would love for them to take a look at this book. That's great, Adam. Now, you've been so generous with your time today to come and share with us about this book. I wonder, what are you working on next? Uh, is, there, is, there, is there something else that we can be looking forward to from you? Well, yeah, thank you. I've, I've shifted gears a little, but not as much as some of the sort of culture war historians think. Uh, so these days, I step back in time. I'm looking at the early 1800s. I'm looking at the public schools, London, but more and more uh, closely focused on the United States cities like Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston. And uh, it's the same question for me, but it might seem different. In this case, I'm looking at this idea that was supposed to transform public schools into fabulous, fair schools for everyone. They called it Lancastrian education after the London Lang Joseph Lancaster. Um, so it, it seems like a very different world than creationism, but it's really not. Uh, to me, the question is, who gets to say what goes on in schools? Um, uh, how have, over time, uh, different ideas about education become prominent? Um, so for me, it's the same story, even though <laughs> the characters are a lot different and the archives are a lot different. But right now I'm looking at the early 1800s public schools in big American cities. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to read it when it comes out. It's it's wild, weird, wonderful stuff, Ryan. Fantastic. Well, this has been a conversation with Adam Lotz. He's the author of Creationism USA, Bridging the Impasse on Teaching Evolution. You can get your copy now from Oxford University Press. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com where you can browse our library of over 12,000 author interviews. No matter what you're interested in, you're sure to find it there. But that's it for now. I hope you have a great day. <laughs>